At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We live in a world full of information, literally at our fingertips. Among all the claims of truth in the world, it can be hard to separate fact from fiction. This is often the case when it comes to the Christian faith. Do we understand the truth of what we believe, and can we articulate it to others? In The Essentials, Why Truth Matters, we'll use the affirmations of the Apostles' Creed as a guide to teaching us the core doctrines of the Christian faith. Join us each week as we affirm the foundational truths of Christianity so we can stand on the bedrock of God's truth and share that good news with the world. As I said earlier, today is an honor to be with you as spiritual family. There are very few days that are as high, as important, as holy as the day that we gather today and to have the privilege of singing these songs with you later taking communion, praying with you, and to look upon the scriptures with you is nothing short of a blessing that I'm grateful for as we again consider and so survey the wondrous cross. You know, um, the scriptures have always been the anchor of our church, and this uh, act of preaching is a powerful moment that you should rightfully expect a lot from because this is not my time or anyone's time to simply share with you personal opinion, but to look back on the word of the living God and to say, what have you said, Lord, and how should we live in light of what you have said and what Christ did on that cross? You know, preaching is an important thing, and and I want to remind you today that preaching that is not anchored in the word of God is is actually not good for our souls at all. As a matter of fact, I'm, I'm convinced, and hopefully you are as well, that it's the will of God to take the word of God to make the children of God look like the son of God. And the fact of the matter is, is that as the word of God shapes and molds the way we think, we emerge with a different worldview, a different way of seeing ourselves, a different way of seeing the world around us, a different way of seeing God. And hopefully, like these corrective lenses that I'm wearing, we will take on the corrective lenses of the cross to see life through the cross of Christ. How would we live differently? How would we love differently? How would we forgive differently? How would we hope differently if everything in life was seen through the lens of the cross of Christ? And that's what we're gonna do today as we look at, at the word of God. Now, now you may ask, I know I ask sometimes the question of what, what did the first followers of Jesus teach? What was their message? Well, the apostle Paul removes all questions about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where he says that the basis of their message was the cross. And that wasn't a popular message during his day. He says, no, the Jews, they looked for a sign. They wanted to see miracles. And the, the Greeks, the Gentiles, they were looking for wisdom. They wanted to be mesmerized by the oratory skills of the speakers of their day, But Paul says, we don't do any of that. We simply preach Christ crucified. The power of God. That's the power of God, folks, that the the apex of our faith, the centrality of the gospel is that old rugged cross 
where our sin debt was satisfied by the perfect blood of a sinless Savior. And I don't know about you, but forever he is worthy of my worship because of all that he did. As a matter of fact, if he never did another thing for me, if I never got that next promotion or the big house or those toys that I romanticize about, if I, if I never got those extra things, he would still be worthy of all of my praise, of all of the glory, of all the honor because of all that he has done. It is right for us to sing what he's done. But we do so quickly forget one of my favorite preachers, H.B. Charles, tells the story of the famed historical downtown church who uh, decided years ago that they wanted to etch in the side of their building the words of 1 Corinthians 1.23, we preach Christ crucified. But over time, Ivy grew up over the wall and it covered up but one word. And what was left is we preach Christ. A little bit more time went by and the Ivy grew a little bit more and it covered up another word. And what was left is we preach And that is the fateful tale of so many modern churches that have over time drifted from the central message of the cross that anchors us to the text, that tethers us to the gospel. We are not called just simply to preach. We are called to preach Christ crucified. Because Christ crucified reminds us of who he is and more Significantly, in this moment, it humbles us in reminding us of who we are not. We are not good on our own. We are not able to save ourselves. We cannot clean ourselves up and then come to God. No, we needed a cross. We needed a sinless Savior. We needed one who would go before the judge of all of heaven and earth and stand on our behalf, taking upon him the sin debt that we owe. But I don't want to be guilty of what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. Maybe you've heard that before. My father was a history uh, teacher for 27 years. He taught me to appreciate history. And so I recognize that Christianity is not a conversation that starts between you and I right now, but it's been going on for two millennia now. And so we've been looking over the last several weeks at a historic statement of faith. It's called the Apostles' Creed, and I have a printed copy of it right in front of me. And you've heard, no doubt, if you've been a part of our Sunday gathering, some of the segments of this creed. Today we go further. If you wouldn't mind, I want to read to you just the first uh, few stanzas. It simply starts with these two powerful words, I believe. If someone were to ask you what you believe, what is the anchor and the bedrock of your faith? What do you believe? What have you you set your hopes on? What do you believe that shapes the way you live? I hope that you will respond as faithfully as the first followers of Jesus did, as this was penned during the apostles' generation or maybe shortly thereafter. And it says this, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And today we pick up this next few lines. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and was buried. He descended to the dead. 
Now, reading those words may not seem significant to you, so far removed in time, in geography, in culture from that moment. But let me explain to you, friends, the words of that statement of faith, again, is the heart of the gospel, and it is the watershed moment of human history. C.S. Lewis once said this, if Christ was crucified, then Christianity is of infinite importance. But if he was not crucified, it is of no importance. But what it cannot be is mildly important. For some of us, our faith is mildly important to us. It affects our Sundays, but maybe not our Monday through Saturdays. But Christ, what he did on that cross is so significant It is so enormous, it is so world-altering, so historically significant, so life-changing that it cannot be mildly important. The cross demands our total yielded surrender to God and it demands our worship, not just in the words of our lips in song, as beautiful as that may sound, as melodious as that may be, the worship that God is looking for is a humble, yielded heart in obedience to him, saying because of that cross, maybe even with tears going, rolling down our face, because of that cross, I will obey, Lord. Because of what you did for me, I will obey, Lord. Now today, I want us to look at three really powerful truths. And if you wouldn't, open your, wouldn't mind opening your Bibles with me to John chapter 19, can we do that? Or maybe open up your Bible apps if you have them on your devices But what we're gonna see today is through his death, Jesus put sin to death. Through his death, Jesus put sin to death. In order to understand why the good news is so good, you have to be reminded, I have to be reminded of why the bad news is so bad. I am prone to doing what is not convenient for myself. I am prone to following my emotions. Anybody ever been on a roller coaster before? Aren't you amazed that we pay for certain things? Like we pay for horror movies, so for somebody to scare us. We pay for roller coasters so we can go up and down and lose our lunch. That's a whole different psychological analysis. But if you've ever been on a roller coaster, you know the ups and downs of that ride. And so it is with our emotions, the ups and downs, the moment where my emotions tell me you should do this, even though my mind tells me that's a foolish thing. You will risk everything that you've worked hard for, the emotions that tell me you should walk away or give up on those things that have been such a blessing, the emotions that we all feel that seem to contradict good wisdom, good thinking, good reasoning. We've all been there. And by the time sin is done with us, it puts us in a prison, and we are trapped in that prison. And how do we get free from that? Maybe you felt trapped by your own decisions. Maybe you have felt trapped because of mistakes of your past. Maybe you know what it is to feel like you're in a prison, and maybe you're on the verge of giving up thinking that things cannot change. But I will tell you this, friends. 
that one act, one powerful act changes everything for you, for me, and for all eternity. It is the cross of Christ. And when we put our faith and trust in these words that I just said and the actions that these words reflect of what Christ did on the cross, the prison doors swing wide open. And the Bible says that he makes all things new. And maybe you think you're such a unique sinner that somehow what you have done is so unforgivable that God wants nothing to do with you. Without bursting your bubble too much, let me tell you, you're not that unique. For all of us, as was read earlier, are like sheep who go astray. Every single one of us have sinned against God. And if you've broken part of the law, you've broken all of the law, according to scripture, but praise be to God, nothing I've done on earth is greater than what he did on Calvary. How many thank God that his cross sets us free? Three essential truths that the statement of faith reveals to us. First, that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. It says in verse number one of John chapter 19, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe that came up to him saying, hail king of the Jews and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, see, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, behold the man. You know, this is an interesting historical record of one of the most surprisingly consequential Roman political leaders that history ever records. His name is Pontius Pilate. He would have otherwise been forgotten if it were not for Jesus. What keeps him in our minds, even into this modern moment, was not his quality of political leadership. As a matter of fact, what we see on display here is he was no strong leader. Like many who have come before him, he was a a weak leader. But it was the fact that he oversaw this, this trial of this man named Jesus, who, by the way, was more than a man. He was the the son of God, the God-man. That makes him qualified to be mediator between God and man. The only one who can defend us before a righteous God is a righteous Savior. And there Pontius Pilate stood the most life-defining moment for him politically as the leaders of the religious movement of, the Judea, of, of, of Judaism brought this character, Jesus, before him. Now, a little bit about Pontius Pilate. He's the fifth Roman governor uh, over this province called Judea. He reigned under Caesar Augustus. And there was only two requirements of his office. The first requirement of his office was to be a strong man, to execute the will of Caesar. The second requirement of his office is summed up in the Latin term Pax Romana, which means the peace of Rome. You are to keep peace in your sector of the vineyard at whatever cost. So imagine how unsettling it was for him to see that there was this scuffle going on around this Messiah figure named Jesus. 
So he thought he would quelch it quickly. He told them to bring Jesus to him, and he begins to pepper Jesus with questions. Questions like, are you the king of the Jews? Questions like, what is truth? Questions like, why are you here? What have you done? Are you king? To which Jesus responds so clearly, so powerfully, so righteously by standing before him without shaking or shivering, silently staring him in the eye with those fiery eyes that pierce the soul to which Pontius Pilate looks back at him and says, don't you know the power that I hold over your life? Jesus, again, not moved by it. Pilate finds no guilt in this man. But again, he was a weak leader, like many leaders we've seen throughout history. And so instead of standing on his integrity, he gives in to the mob. And he allows them, as the creed says, to inflict suffering upon Jesus. In verse number one, we see that he was flogged. Can you imagine the shame in being flogged, beaten with a whip or a cat of nine tails, your flesh being exposed, the pain physically that comes along with that. By the time we get to verse number two, they are uh, twisting together a crown of thorns, these strong thorns that they press into his skull. As the blood comes down from his skull, matching the blood that was dripping from his back, he was, he was suffering, he was being beaten. But the beating was not all that they did. They also mocked him. Verse number three tells us that they also put a purple robe on him. Purple has always and still to this day represents royalty. They put the robe on him, not because they really believed him to be a king, but simply to mock him, to say in essence, you say you're a king, but look at how weak you are. You can't even rescue yourself from this moment. And so they put a, a robe on him and then they begin to make fun of him. Hail, king of the Jews. They didn't really believe that, but that's what they said. And then they begin to strike him with their hands. Imagine for a moment the creature striking the creator as they spat on him and they beat him and they bruised him. Now the temptation of a justice-oriented generation like ours is to only see this moment on a horizontal level. To see Jesus as maybe the primary martyr of those who have been mistreated and abused by men in power. And that mistake, looking at this historical account from a horizontal perspective, have led to many people making false analogies. Just because one of your favorite people is mistreated by those that are in power does not equate them to suffering what Jesus endured. No, his suffering was utterly unique. And the only way we can understand this moment is to look at it from a vertical perspective. What was he enduring? This was no weak man who could not have stopped all of this. He could have, with one word, called a legion of angels down, and he could have disrupted all of the power structures and systems of Rome. He could have turned the world upside down, if it were. 
If he desired to, he could have exercised his divine prerogative and showed them the power of the Son of God. But this would have been a misappropriation and a misunderstanding of power. We think of power as might and strength exercised through aggression, but he wanted to show that power is also humble and expressed through compassion. So why? My question to you today is this, why did he suffer? Why did he allow them to mock him? Because if you don't understand the answer to that question, you won't understand this cross, you won't understand this day, you won't understand why he demands our worship. In spite of how we may be feeling in the moment, there are no days off when it comes to giving God the glory that is due his name. So why did he suffer? Well, it was read to you earlier, but if you wouldn't mind a little redundancy, Isaiah chapter 53 says these words in verses four and five, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Why did he suffer? Not because he was some powerless victim at the hands of an imperialist culture and a Roman emperor. No, he suffered for you. He suffered for me. He recognized that our greatest need is not bread or water as important as those things might be. Our greatest need is not house or shelter. Our greatest need is for spiritual freedom. And with each stripe, with each wound, with each word of mockery as the blood spilled down his head and his back, he was securing our spiritual healing and he was purchasing our salvation. Thank God for the cross. The scripture goes on to say that he not only suffered under Pontius Pilate, but he also was crucified, died, and buried. Continuing on in chapter 19 of John, can you jump with me to verse 16? As it says, so he delivered him, referring to Pontius Pilate, over to them to be crucified. Going on, so they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. I want you to just see for just a moment how humiliating this, this was. 
And in many ways, I want to put the humiliation of this moment on display because I believe that the humiliation of Jesus recorded in this text is one of the greatest verifiers of the credibility of the text. After all, if all you were trying to do is to write some story about a hero that you wanted to esteem highly, you would not include embarrassing facts like he was beaten publicly. Can you imagine saying that you follow a faith in which the central figure of that faith was publicly beaten. Imagine it in our day. Somebody who says that they are Savior and Messiah being taken by authorities, publicly beaten, and then killed, crucified. Crucifixion was this this brutal act. The Bible declares that Jesus carried the, the cross. Consider for just a moment the weight of that cross. Consider that weight of that cross as it laid upon his bruised and beaten body. As he carried it up this hill, carrying his own cross, physically exhausted because when the Son of God comes into the world, he takes on all of humanity. He knows what it is to be hungry, to be tired, He knows what it is to weep, and he knows what it is to feel pain. And so he carries this cross, and as he gets to that place of his crucifixion, in sheer exhaustion, the cross drops to the ground. Consider the weight of the cross as it crashes to the ground. And if that was not enough, they tied him to that cross. And then they took these Roman nails, crucifixion, uh, was uh, an art form, if you will. It was, it was a science. Uh, the Roman soldiers had to be trained in how to execute this, this properly because if you did it wrong, you missed the whole point. Him dying quickly was not the goal. It was him suffering humiliation as a witness to anyone else who might want to say that they are king of the Jews. They hung him to that cross, driving nails through his hand, overlapping his feet with one another on the bottom of that cross, driving nails through his feet, and then taking that cross, picking it up, and shoving it into the ground as every bone in his body was jarred in that moment. He suffered for you. He suffered for me. The humiliation that he took on is the humiliation I deserved. How many times have I blown it? And because of his grace, My forgiveness was extended and my humiliation was avoided. For how many along with me can acknowledge today in this moment that you deserved in this life far more humiliation than what you've experienced? I know I have. A few honest souls are out there raising their hands with me. The rest of you are lying. (laughs) How many of us deserve far more punishment than what we experience deserve the same beating that he experienced because of the brokenness that we've inflicted. It's easy to blame everyone else for the mistakes that they've done, but what about searching your own soul for just a moment? I wouldn't have you do this for too long because it could be overwhelming. One of the most dangerous prayers to pray is, Lord, show me my heart. Show me who I really am. You don't do that lightly because sometimes you want to look away But there are times when the Spirit gently grabs us by the chin and says, don't look away. Don't look away. Experience for just a moment what it is 
that you have caused, the hurt, the pain, the disappointment, the lying, the dishonesty, the cheating, whatever our variety of sin may be, all of that deserve punishment and humiliation. But Jesus took our humiliation upon himself as he took the wrath of God upon himself on our behalf. It's as if we stand in the courtroom of heaven and the gavel is about to go down, issuing the judgment for us. And Jesus steps into the courtroom and says, I'll pay the price for them. And so he was crucified. Jump with me, if you would, quickly to verse 28. And we see that he wasn't just crucified, he died. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it, up to, uh, held it to his mouth, rather. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He died just as the scripture said. This is no physical, I mean, this is no um, uh, mythical death. This is no make-believe moment. This is no symbolic death. So many people have rendered the story of Christ to be something uh, uh, subjected to just mere hyperbole, something that is just uh, good for us by way of analogy, symbolism, but no, he physically died. Not only did he physically die, but jumping with me, if you will, to verse number 38, he was also buried. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and alloys, uh, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid him there. Jesus was crucified, he died, and he was buried. And again, all of that is terribly inconvenient for a hero story. But all of that adds to the credibility that this is no fan letter, that when you pick up the scriptures, you're not just reading the hype news of the day, but when you pick up the scripture, you are reading a historical account that invites you to investigate. And friends, I invite you to investigate this deeper because the more you read of Jesus, the more you realize that he is who he says he is and he has done for you and me what no one else has ever done for us. Scarcely will a man die for someone who is righteous, let alone the righteous dying for the unrighteous. But that's exactly what Jesus did. The hero died for the villain so that we might be redeemed and that is why he is worthy of all of our praise. 
And then finally, quickly, Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, if we can go there, the words will also join us on the screen. It says that he descended to the dead. Verse number 14 of Colossians chapter 2 says, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Here's what God did through Christ on that cross after he had satisfied all the earthly requirements of the law to purchase our salvation. He then descends to the dead, the place of the dead, so that he might disarm death, hell, and the grave, so that he might announce his triumph fully over Satan, so that he might be able to defang death so that you and I no longer have to fear. And friends, here's the glorious announcement. Not only do we not have to fear in life, but because of what he has done for us, because of what he's done that brings us together today, we can face death with courage because death has lost its sting and the grave has lost its victory because Jesus reigns as King and Lord of all. And so why? Why would he do all of that? Because he loves us like no one else has loved us. And he invites us to sweet communion with him and with one another. I want to invite you to bow your heads with me as we simply pray. We pause for a moment, Father. And we remember what you secured. Sin is a predatory lender charging us high interest rates, condemning us to bankruptcy, crushing us under the weight of its debt. And we could not pay it. We could not purchase our freedom. But Jesus, with the precious blood of a sinless Savior, paid our debt. Every one of our sins, whether there be one or a million, every one of our mistakes has been forgiven in Christ because of that cross. Thank you for the suffering, for the humiliation, for the pain, for all that you endured so that we might know freedom. We love you, we praise you, and we thank you. It's in Christ's name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.